Have you got questions about what's going on with Alaska's crab fishery? That's what we're talking about today. Welcome to the Alaska Uncovered podcast with me, your host, Jenny Twing Flaming. My occasional co-host and full-time husband, Jay, and I bring you accurate, helpful, and entertaining information about Alaska travel and life in Alaska. Our guest today is Frank Kelty. Frank moved to Unalaska in 1971. He has spent over 35 Alaska. years working in the Alaska seafood industry from, cram from salmon to crab and from the Bering Sea to Kodiak and the Aleutian Islands, all the way out to Adak. He served on the Unalaska City Council for eight years and as the mayor of Unalaska for 13 years. And he has also worked for the city of Unalaska, managing everything related to seafood. And Frank has tried a few times to retire, but he keeps coming back to it. And we are so excited to have you here today, Frank. Thank you for being here and welcome to Alaska Uncovered. Uh, good afternoon, Jenny. And uh, good afternoon, Jay. Very nice to meet you people. Yeah. yeah thanks for being here. You know, Frank, we were speaking with Catherine from um, from Unalaska, uh, recording a, a previous podcast episode. I'm not sure when that will come out relevant to this one, but she was adamant that we needed to talk to you uh, as the expert on on crab fishing. And now I see why. Well, Catherine's been a friend. <laughs> I've been a friend of Catherine's, I think, since she was uh, a junior uh, <laughs> in junior high. She kind of I kind of watched her grow up through the years so that's um, awesome <laughs> so for folks listening that episode um with Catherine about unalaska was in early december so um you can go back and listen to that one if you missed it what episode so, it was what number i don't know okay never mind <laughs> i mean i can look it up but uh yeah it's episode 38 okay it's episode 38 thanks jay um, so Frank, yeah, to Catherine's, start... doing a, Catherine's doing a great job at the CBB, by the way. Uh, yeah. Been, they had a heck of a summer, over 20, 20 cruise ships and uh, oh. all shapes and sizes. And uh, um, she's, she's doing great. She's, uh, she's a good source to talk to on CBB issues, but uh, she also served with me on the Unalaska City Council. And yeah. she's uh, been involved heavily in Unalaska for many years. She was a, a a real delight. We discovered her uh, in Fairbanks at a, at a conference this fall, and and uh, yeah, and you know, I never in my life before now have thought, oh, you know, I really want to go out to Dutch or on Alaska and and visit. Like it's just always been kind of a. I was I lived in Fairbanks for about twenty years, and I just found the idea a forbidding place in my mind. And she convinced me to want to go out there in about ten minutes. So. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, it, uh, it's uh, it's still I still call it home even after even though yeah. I have left for three four years now. But uh, you know when you spend fifty years of your life somewhere, it's uh, you can't. It's still in my heart. That's for sure. Yeah, I get gets in. So Frank, tell us how you got to Alaska in the beginning. Well, in the beginning, as uh, I kind of grew up in my high school years in a boys' home. My mother died when I was like in ninth grade. Uh, my dad had left, so 
myself, I was the oldest and a younger brother and a younger sister. We all kind of uh, got taken up and put our separate ways by uh, church groups. Or uh, in my case, I went to a, a boys home in, outside of Renton, Washington, in Renton, Washington. Uh, and uh, I went there when I was in ninth grade. And I stayed there all through my high school years. And uh, one of the benefactors of the boys' home was uh, her husband was the head of general construction, which is uh, they do huge projects on the West Coast of construction and docks and things like that. Well, her somebody that she knew was in the seafood industry in Alaska. So she called up this guy because I needed a summer job. Uh, I was going off to junior college to play football. So I had a scholarship. But I didn't have any money and didn't have any parents. So uh, she found me a job with a seafood company. And I went to Bristol Bay in 1968, summer of 1968, 69, and part of 1970, and worked in a salmon cannery while I was going to the college and worked in the salmon canneries in Bristol Bay in the summertime. And fortunately, <laughs> I didn't make a lot of money there because there were down salmon years that time in Bristol Bay. But uh, anyway, I... Uh, I worked for a company called East Point Seafoods for three years. And then, as I stated earlier in the broadcast, uh, uh, they were starting a crab operation. And by chance, I needed some extra money to pay for a, a car. So I said, well, I'll go out and do a wintertime, take some time off from school and do a, uh, a king crab season in the wintertime on this uh, East Point ship that they were converting to freeze and butcher king crab on. And uh, so I signed aboard this old World War II uh, yard oiler, the YO, and uh, did about six knots. So it took us many days <laughs> to get to Dutch Harbor and out to ADAC. It was a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks of six knots. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was like 40 of us on this boat. We had uh, shacks up on the upper decks that we tack built on to house workers in bunk beds and you know we had eight man room and 12 man room so it was quite the adventure going the high seas yeah, uh, very, but, uh very slowly luckily i didn't get seasick too bad <laughs> i had that's lucky yeah on, uh, i was i have one little cute antidote that uh, my boss asked me the guy that hired me says frank you got any experience on vessels i said yeah i i drive i ride the bremerton to uh, seattle ferry all the time and that just <laughs> cracked him up naturally so uh so that was my experience uh, seamanship experience was riding on ferry boats and i uh, learned it was a lot more exciting when you got into the Bering sea and the gulf of alaska right so uh anyway that started my career uh working in bristol bay and then uh to uh out to Adak on a ship and back to Kodiak, freezing salmon in the summertime on that ship. And then we went full-time to Unalaska in 1972 and uh, started setting up, uh, building a dock and uh, renovating some old Navy buildings that were on the waterfront to make a shore plant. And then at the same time, use the ship uh, to process king crab from the Bering Sea. So that was, uh, so that you did, did you crab from this ship or, sorry, I, I, or you just processed them on the no, ship? No, we just the, the processed on the ship. The crab boats delivered to us. Oh, uh, God. And we had some amazing adventures uh, in a big storm out at Adak Island, which is just uh, near uh, about 30 miles away from Adak Island. Uh, we got blown ashore in a big storm. We dragged our anchors and ended up on a, 
on a couple of rock piles and punctured a hole in the boat. And uh, oh god, <laughs> uh, kind of the Navy tugboats out at Adak came and towed us, towed us back to Adak. <laughs> it was a bear. They towed us backwards, <laughs> so because <laughs> the the cargo holes in the front were full of water. So we got towed into the harbor at Adak. Uh, pumped out them. Most of the crew quit naturally. Jumped off the ship because they were terrified. But I didn't uh, jump off the ship. We uh, we pumped out the cargo holes that were flooded and uh, hired that came into Adak and fixed the hull. Yeah, <laughs> fixed the hull. And uh, you know, uh, our captain of the ship was also an engineer. And so we hauled like the electric motors that went underwater. You can save those. You take them up to a freshwater stream. You dump these 25 horsepower or 30 horsepower motors in the stream for a day, take them out, and then you bake them in an oven. And then right. they work again when they put them back together. Get the salt <laughs> water out of them. So. That's Alaska engineering right there. You know, it's it's uh <laughs> it was it was quite the adventure. <laughs> That's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. You know, we yeah. Frank, we live um just a couple of miles northwest of Renton, so uh yeah, you know where uh, the Griffin Home for Boys is in Kennedale, right there on the lake. Yeah, that's yep. It used to be a huge white mansion, a 1920 style mansion that a lumber baron had. It used to be right on the main plateau uh, where the big green lawn is. Now they've got a bunch of newer buildings. But yeah, I uh, that's where I hung out for four years from ninth grade till I graduated from Renton High School. Huh. You know, I, I think it's now called like uh, the Friends of Youth or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. But they have multi multiple buildings now. When I was there, we had a 1920s mansion we lived in with the, the you know, like the gum with the wind white pillars and everything. It's just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I used to ride bikes by that. That's it, it's still the building uh, definitely stood out. Well, that's probably a yeah. Pretty- it's uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah. There's pictures of it. Frank, could you tell us, so, you know, you, you described why that you headed out of it. And if you, if listeners aren't familiar, Bristol Bay is still the, the fishery for salmon in Alaska. Um, and it's a long ways out from, to, to, to Unalaska at Dutch Harbor from there. So Frank, why are the king crab out in uh, the Bering Sea and what's, what's the Bering Sea like? I mean, what else is out there that <laughs> people fish for or. What, what, can you just kind of orient folks well, to the Bering Sea fishery? Yeah. Well, into the, the Bering Sea, we have uh, the world's most valuable and largest fishery, the, the Pollock fishery. Uh, that, that fishery supports uh, allocations of uh, uh, 1.3 million metric tons, but to round that off so people can understand, 1.3 million metric tons is 2.8 billion pounds. And uh, that's what the quota has been very close to that the last uh, years. Uh, the pollock fishery started onshore and in the offshore sector by factory trawlers uh, in the mid 1980s. And, uh, and like I said, right now, it's the most valuable and largest commercial fishery that Alaskans uh, uh, and other people from Seattle area fish. Uh, besides that fishery, and the next most valuable ground fish fishery is the Pacific cod fishery. And you have pollock is done by trawling, midwater trawlers only. But cod fishery, you have hook and line gear, you have pots, you have trawler, 
You have uh, some people that use jig. So there's multiple gear sectors involved. You also have the Amendment 80 uh, bottom trawl fishery where you do your mackerel, your yellowfin sole. Uh, multiple fisheries are also in the Bering Sea and, and Aleutian Islands. Uh, you have your, your Bering Sea crab fisheries. We have three, four major crab fisheries right now. Uh, the Bristol Bay red crab, uh, which is the most famous of any crab fishery that we have in Alaska. Uh, the tanner crab fishery, the snow crab fishery that uh, until, it got, until it was closed for the last two years because of a stock failure, uh, was the largest fishery. When we first started that fishery in the mid 80s and up to the 90s, sometimes we had allocations of two to 300 million pounds of snow crab. It was the bread and butter of the crab fishery. Not the most valuable, but with the, it was by volume wise, was the bread and butter of the fleet because they would get to fish it for four to five months and then have king crab and the tannic crab fishery. And the golden king crab fishery out in the Aleutian Islands is right now has been our most stable fishery. It's still fairly small, but it's around uh, uh, five and a half to six million pounds for that fishery. And it's been very uh, steady status quo level for many years and hasn't seen any uh, major collapse like we've seen on snow crab, tanner crab, and king crab. Uh, and uh, there's also the halibut, sable fish fisheries in the Bering Sea. I, there's, like I said, the Bering Sea is the most productive uh, uh, ocean in the, in the world, I believe, for uh, 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 maintaining uh, uh, fisheries that uh, uh, for the world. Frank, the um, a couple of questions. One is, so I, I was living in in Fairbanks in the early '90s, and I remember people talking about both the Pollock and um, Tanner crab fisheries coming out. And just to clarify, in my head, Tanner crab, is, the snow crab is just a marketing name for Tanner crab, right? They're the same same beast. No, no, they're not. Uh, this tanner crab is the larger crab. It's about a two pound crab. Yeah. It looks similar to a snow crab. The snow crab is the smaller version of a tanner crab. Their, their meat is very similar, but there's a difference in size. Oh, okay. Uh, so we have the Bering Sea tanner crab, and then you have the Bering Sea, we used to call it Opelio snow crab, which is the biological name, but Opelio, Opelio crab didn't seem to go very well so they turned it into snow crab for marketing purposes so now it's called snow crab got it okay and, do and they... that crab is that crab is about 1.2 pounds 1.3 pounds and it's very large so it's the it's the baby of the family crab yeah. families and how big do do the king crabs get to well king crab the traditional king crab we fish now is around 6.5 pounds and a yeah. tanner crab around 2.2 2.3 and then the snow crab, as I said, is 1.3. But in the older, in the 70s and, and 80s, we had uh, the Pribilof Island blue king crab. Some of those crab would go up to 10, 12 pounds. And also yeah. Pribilof red king crab would be up to 15 pounders. Monster that is crab. wild. But, but those crab seasons have been closed for 20 years, 25 yeah. years. And uh, and Kodiak also had very large king crab when they had a king crab fishery in Kodiak, but they haven't had a king crab fishery in Kodiak Island probably 30 years or long, maybe longer. But they've had a very successful tanner crab fishery the last two years. They were up to 7 million pounds last year. Uh, so right now, that's uh, the tanner crab fishery in Kodiak Island is uh, probably the largest fishery uh, in volume uh, going right now. I've only uh, I've only caught king crab 
once and it was uh when i was i was learning to scuba dive i had just gotten my license or gotten my permit and we we were scuba diving for king crab and i'll tell you they look really big when you're down on the bottom. <laughs> you're trying to grab one and shove it into a net bag. Uh, well, I, I, I spent <laughs> I spent many years uh, helping butcher those babies, and they uh, they're <laughs> they're big. They're creatures. pretty sl- Yeah, they're you know they're not real fast. Uh, well, neither am I. Like Dungeon S or Dungeon S crab will bite you in a heartbeat, you know, if they get a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So. We crab for Dungeon S around here sometimes, and I have gotten. I've gotten the bite from them many times. Oh yeah, <laughs> me too. I've they're uh, not my favorite crab to have to work with <laughs> when they're alive. So, Frank, um before today, for probably many people listening before this episode, what most people know about Alaska's crab fishery comes from the TV show The Deadliest Catch. And so we wanted to know from your perspective does the show like how accurate is the show in the way that it portrays the fishery? You know, are there things they get right? What do they not get right? We were curious about that. Well, you know, uh, I I know most of those guys have been on that show for years because having lived in Alaska, I, I'm friends with some of them. You know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the real top crab fishermen didn't want to even be involved in it, didn't join up with it, but they still had uh, uh, some really good fishermen that, that work in that show. Uh, the guy on the, the Colburn family on the wizard and uh, Hanson's uh, I know, matter of fact, uh, they're the Hanson's uh, brothers, uh, uh, father and, uh, and uh, uncle delivered crab to me in the, in the heyday of the late seventies. So that's awesome. Um, I would say, uh, you know, some of the, the more realistic stuff, you can't uh, Hollywood up the weather. When you see the weather that the guys are trying to fish in, um, that's pretty accurate. But, you know, they've had seasons where they, they had some stunts where uh, they uh, they hooked a pot, pot up to a car or a wrecked car and uh, or one time to an outhouse I saw. So there are moments where they got uh, some Hollywood stuff in there. <laughs> I'm sure uh, a crew member would go up to the wheelhouse and start screaming at the captain. That yeah. uh, that doesn't happen. If no, somebody no. did that, usually they would tell the guy to get on your get your survival suit on, and we're going to tie a rope to you and throw you to a boat that's going to town because you're off the boat. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the, the realistic stuff, like some of the breakdowns you have, the, that's very accurate. Uh, the weather situations. Uh, when that show started, we didn't have a rationalized crab fishery. So then you were. Yeah, it was like 24 hour openers and dealing stuff. Dealing right? with stuff where you're in the race for fish and, yeah. and things like that. The Olympic system. Right, right. Uh, you know, very, it was very dangerous. Uh, I was mentioned earlier that we, uh, that myself and other, many other people were, were working really hard to get that fishery rationalized for the main reason was safety. And also to, to have more time to deal with the product in a good way uh, without uh, having to uh, have this race going on where you increase the. Yeah, so different opportunities for what kind of product you could produce. The safety was a, the big issue. Uh, I lost uh, one boatload of guys that fish for me. It broke my heart. Uh, 
just from, you know, they were fishing in winter weather with a deck load of gear and, uh, and, uh, the boat rolled over and I stopped and, uh, they were all gone. You know? So, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that happened all the time during an unrationalized fisheries, because with a race, you had 250 boats out there racing to catch the allocation as fast as they could. So they, uh, you know, a lot of them had to, to uh, fish in whether they shouldn't have been out there. And so now it's a much safer fishery and uh, it's uh, a better way to do business. Each vessel, rationalized means each vessel has a, a quota based on their history. So they can fish their quota whenever time frame they want to, as long as the season's still open. So um, you don't, no need to go fish in bad weather. Uh, and so the, holly, the deadliest catch came up with different things that instead of, having to uh, race to get the quota, then they had to race to make a delivery date, which is not quite accurate either, at least in my mind, because I ran them. I, I had crab delivery scheduled. And actually, we weren't going to force somebody to come in uh, just to make his date or his time to get offloaded if he wasn't ready. So, you know, you just juggle your schedule around a little bit. All those reality, but, uh, play uh, with the, all those reality shows play with those kinds of things to further show's tension, I think. I yeah. Always, so instead of having a race to get the quota, now it was a race to get a race to get the town to make your date. So yeah. you know. So, anyway, Hollywood. Was, they had Hollywooded up a little bit. I was up. But, at, you know the. It's very right. true about the, when guys got hurt. You know, it's very dangerous uh, on those decks out there. And uh, you know, I've seen uh, many a boat come in with their wheelhouse windows got knocked out, and they had to be towed to town or they had somebody escort them to town so they make it in. No radios, no radar, no nothing. Uh, you know, uh, so it's uh, it's still a very dangerous profession. I was up there. Uh, I was up at University of Alaska in Fairbanks uh, when the that stuff was being mulled, tossed around in the late 90s. And um, I was on a graduate student. I was a grad student on a big panel that was analyzing some of the impacts from that. And I was just really surprised. Uh, for our listeners, I, 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 Frank, you can correct me if I don't get this quite right. But the way the systems used to work was that the there would be a very short window of time that you could fish. And, if, and everybody was racing to catch the number of fish that would be allowed to be caught that year or crab. Uh, and they would. So if you lost an engine, for example, like you couldn't stop because that could be essentially bankruptcy if yeah. you. You know, or a storm that's, came up the day that it was going to be open. That's, and so now, like, <laughs> saying that now the boats get the right to fish them at their leisure, essentially. And that means that people can make wiser, safer choices. That's correct. You know, and a rationalized, rationalized system on some of the smaller communities like Kodiak uh, and uh, King Cove, a lot of those communities had smaller boats. So naturally, they felt they got... Um, Right. Treated fairly because the bigger Seattle based boats got the majority of the allocation based on their history with a bigger boat. They had more history during the years that the uh, program. For, so they were very unhappy. Right. Yeah. And they yeah. were disadvantaged because they had smaller boats and they didn't catch as much as the other guys. So naturally, their quota shares were lower. Right. Because it was based but a on lot of those people made out by selling their quota shares. And taking all the money they got for during the the high prices they got for it when the fishery first got rationalized, a lot of guys ended up just uh, you know I know one guy that ended up with uh, 
he invested all the money he got into a, a guy from Kodiak, as a matter of fact, has this huge museum of uh, Corvettes he bought. You know, uh, I'm not gonna, he had he had multiple boats, but he put a whole bunch of fishermen from Kodiak uh, uh, didn't have jobs anymore because he sold uh, sold his boats and his quota share to somebody else in the Bering Sea. You know, or a saddle based boat or something. So. Yeah, uh, and then a lot of guys just retired to Hawaii. They sold out to Hawaii. So. Yeah, I think I, I I know a guy. I met I know a guy who who sold his quota out and uh, was like, "Hey, I got money and I didn't have to fish for crap anymore." <laughs> I think he was tired of the yeah. Well, they the- leased it out now. They leased it out, and so they don't have to they don't have to pay insurance. They don't have any. Uh, yep. They they might still have a bull payment, but they by leasing out their quota share, they pay the bull payment, but they don't have to buy. Bait. They don't have to buy fuel. They don't have to buy, you know, groceries, and don't have to pay a crew. Yeah. So it's a lot easier, I think, if if you, uh, if you, uh, yeah. So yeah, like um, this year, right now, the crab well, the for king crab this year was two point two million pounds, and I think we had twenty boats that fished it, and uh, maybe even less than that, eighteen to twenty boats, something like that. And it's over with now. It started October 15th. And I think the last boat delivered uh, last week, late last week. So what, you know, you never hear, you, you at least for me growing up or, or in my young adulthood in Alaska, you hear a lot about the dangers of fishing, uh, especially for kings, you know, icing up boats um, and then rolling over and getting driven, having engine failures, getting driven onto the rocks, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Uh, like that, but you never hear about like dan- the danger of, say, like the Pollock fishery. Uh, one thing I wanted to, I was going to ask you about. Uh, well, the Bering Sea. What what is it? Uh, just to rewind slightly, it's pretty shallow, right? Is that a factor? That's correct. The Bering Sea is shallow, but yeah. uh, there are further. When you go further north up towards the Pribilofs and stuff, there are big trenches, and the Aleutian Island has big, uh, uh, big depths. Uh, that uh, golden king crab I was talking about that is uh, fished in the Aleutian Islands, they have to long line the pots because they fish so deep in these trenches that uh, the pots are on a big, like a one inch hauser uh, and they're all lashed together. So if you get one pot coming up, you can get your whole string of pots. It's like that uh, uh, similar, like uh, hook and line fishing when you have, uh, you know, somebody has a skate of hooks. Right. Right. He brings them up. Well, this is long lining for uh, crab pots because never- the water's so deep, you'd be, you know, you'd be coiling for hours to get a pot up instead of. Uh, so if you get one pot, you got a string of ten or twenty pots, whatever it is, in your string, and you can, uh, you can, you know, get some production. Yeah, that's a, I, I, I would never thought of that, but I um used to to set marks for sailboat races here in the Puget Sound, and you know sometimes we're setting them six, seven hundred feet of water. And, you know, by the time you get some scope out, you've got half a mile on each one. And you can spend a long yeah. time pulling a line up from sure. those kind of depths. I can't even imagine. Well, I can't imagine. And, and uh, before they had these automatic coilers, uh, can you imagine those guys would be bent over, coiling the line by hand. Now they have uh, heavy coilers that pull them up. And then they have uh, um, another coiler that uh, instead of having a guy coil it up into a big pile, they have machines that do it for them. Or when I first came up in the crab fisheries, uh, there was no, they didn't even have cranes. Oh, really? So you just pull them up over the side? 
like well, no, they pull them up automatically with these spoilers that brought but, them up. But then but, they had what they called a trolley. It was like a big single boom that had a a trolley on it, and so they would and you have this pop flying around all over the deck as you're as wow. it's going up this trolley up to be stacked. Oh God! And they're heavy too, right? Like I mean, very dangerous. You have pops swinging around. You know, a, a crane now grabs. Yeah, a crane comes down, grabs it, and then just moves the whole pot without swinging it around or anything. You know, it's, right? Uh, anyway, we're getting off topic here a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by it, but yeah. So, uh, so the other thing that folks um, may have heard about is the uh, crash of the Tanner Crab Fishery. Uh, or that's what how it's being described. Snow crab, yeah. Snow crab in our um, in our media. Uh, in so what's what, what, <laughs> well, I've seen my share of crashes. Uh, yeah, let me talk to you about the, the crab crashes. Uh, the first one I was exposed to was uh, we were in the late eighties, uh, early eighties, and late seventies. We were processing a hundred to 130, 140 million pounds of king crab a year. And in 1981, we are expecting 130 million pound quota. Well, we went out there and fish and we, we barely could get about, uh, uh, it was really hard to find a crab. So the next year, the quota got reduced to 30 million. And then in 1982 or 1983, we had no season. So we lost somehow 100 million, uh, 100 million pounds of crab, which at six pounds of crab, we figure it out. Uh, disappeared in one year's time. And we don't know what happened. And we don't know if some people said it's predators. And then the water temperature thing was kicked around a little bit. But as I recall, it was pretty cold water in those days. But uh, I know uh, a lot of the guys that uh, that I talked to, uh, crab fishermen, they thought it was the influx of uh, uh, codfish and pollock that would be eating small crab or and flatfish like sole that are on the bottom. They think it was predators that maybe did more damage in water temperature to the king crab. When they were, but it never came back. I think we had in the next twenty or thirty years, we had one or two seasons of twenty-five million pounds, but we never saw those hundred million pound seasons ever again. And the last fifteen, twenty years, I think the biggest season I can recall is about ten or twelve million pounds. In the last ten years, it's been about two million to four million pounds, and then we had multiple close closed years too we haven't had uh, king crab until this year was uh, was closed for two years in a row until this year so uh the snow crab one is more mystifying to me between 2018 and 2020 uh, 2018 and 2020 we thought we were going to have a huge biomass moving into the fishery and it was estimated the crab biomass for the snow crab which is the opelio snow crab the smaller version was um, 10, mil- 10 billion little animals disappeared in that two-year time frame from 19, 2019 to 2021. And they were just That's gone. That's really mind-boggling. Just mis- mysteriously just gone. And we've had warm water years, and they're thinking that it was uh, possibly water temperature. Uh, they've kind of kicked to the... There's just a couple of articles that just came out recently by the NOAA scientists in Seattle, uh, that they're they're blaming the majority of the problem on water temperature that's kind of like starved, the warm water, the crab have to eat more to survive. And they think cannibalism was involved. Right. That makes uh, sense. They don't have much uh, 
give much credence to bycatch of other fisheries because the amount of cod up there where the snow crab is, uh, nothing changed, no big spike in, you know, harvesters or stuff happening up there, or bycatch numbers climbing of crab because they tracked the bycatch on all these trawl fisheries. Those didn't, didn't explode. Matter of fact, they went down. So then, yeah. uh, you know, is the theory that maybe they went across the line to Russia. Right. Is the... Well, Frank, I don't think Russia's had very good snow crab fisheries either, right on the board. Frank, I remember when I was in, at UAF, uh, we were talking a lot about the donut hole. Is that still an issue in the Bering Sea? Uh, it's still a, a kind of a closed area for uh, for pollock fishing, but the donut hole was a pollock issue, uh, <laughs> where it's kind <laughs> of a, an area that uh, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a major issue anymore because the uh, the pollock stocks in that area aren't that strong. Nobody goes way out there fishing it now. Yeah. Okay. So, it was a, plus it's close. It's closed by it's a multi nation uh, area and uh, it's everybody has to agree to open it. The nations involved, the like South the Koreans, the U.S. And there's not enough fish to bother opening it. Ah. Okay. It makes sense. So, you know, with without a real solid answer about what's going. So, but uh, you, so what, what I'm hearing you say is that. Yeah, the that, latest, the latest thing we have is they're trying to blame it on water temperature. And we all know in the crab industry, everybody knows that warm water, crab do not like warm water. And, yeah. You know, the water temperature has been very warm off and on for the last, you know, the last decade we've had pretty warm weather. Uh, the ice pack used to come down at ice in St. Paul Harbor. We don't see that very much anymore. Uh, most of Bristol Bay would be iced over. That hasn't happened recently. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I guess I have to go with what they're thinking now that it's water temperature. Now, the state of Alaska and the crab industry, uh, I'm, I'm part of a research foundation. The state of Alaska has renovated a sled that can be towed behind a vessel that's going to have cameras on it. And they're going to down to check on crab habitat in the Bering Sea. And okay. hopefully they'll be able to uh, uh, go look around a habitat up in the western, the northwest part of the Bering Sea where the snow crab fishery takes place. But they're getting that out to uh, start doing some work later this spring. They're working on it right now and getting finishing touches on it. And it's a project with the Research Foundation, ADF and G. I don't know if uh, NOAA is involved with it or National Marine Fisheries Service, but uh, yeah, that'll be exciting to see those pictures. It's not going to make videos. It's going to take, you know, pictures that are going off every couple of seconds right. of the bottom and to see what they see. So it'll be interesting. That'll be, that will be really interesting. Yeah, because yeah. they're worried about king crab habitat too. What is impacting king crab habitat? Um you know, be able to see if there's uh, trawl marks on the on the floor of the ocean, you know, from trawls that, that are supposed to be off the bottom. And that's another whole, whole story we're going to start talking about um, bycatch. Yeah. So, Frank, is <laughs> there any but, uh, anyway. is there anything that people who are visiting Alaska can do to support the communities that rely on crab fishing economically or um, even folks who aren't visiting in Alaska? Is there anything 
that folks who are not working you know, the, in this industry can do to support it? Well, yeah, there has been things going on. Uh, uh, I th- the, the Alaska Bering Seed Crabbers is the largest crab organization based in Seattle. And they've had some partnerships with the uh, uh, Grunion uh, Reindeer people and also with uh, uh, some other uh, local businesses. I think there was a, a, a brewing company. I don't know if it was Michelob or a, a, a company that was uh, assisting with donations for them. But uh, for your listeners out there, uh, if they go to alaskaberryseedcrabbers.org, there's information there of, of that uh, uh, of that organization, uh, but they're uh, they're accepting donations, and they've had a tough time the last four years. You know, they've had uh, all their major fisheries that have been shut down, and uh, so they've been struggling. And uh, yeah, uh, we've got the uh, federal government is is uh, trying to get. We have disaster money on the way, but it's been we've had disaster money that was approved in 2019. Still haven't seen the check for that. Yeah, and we we haven't seen the checks for the uh, king crab closures and snow crab closures of uh, 2000, 2000 and 2021. And now we're submitting an application for the snow crab fishery that was closed last year. Uh, so uh, there is some money on the way that will help uh, not just the crabbers, but the processors uh, and the, the crew members are involved uh, through the harvester and uh, their organization, uh, go to alaskaberryseedcrabbers.org. Awesome. Thanks, Frank. We will put that in the show notes uh, so that folks can follow over there. Uh, I'm a community board member representing Alaska on the Bering Sea Crab Research Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that organization is heavily involved with uh, uh, using uh, donations from the crab uh, crab. Uh, uh, vessels used to donate in, when they had seasons, like 1% of their catch uh, uh, of the gross would come to uh, as a donation to the research foundation to help fund research. And now we've been getting grants from NOAA and we've been getting grants from the uh, state of Alaska to do research work. And we're also uh, in line to get some of the disaster funding on research. So um, that's another uh, place that you can look to help too. And that's uh, the Bering Sea Research Fisheries, the Bering Sea Fisheries Research Foundation, and uh, Scott Goodman is the uh, executive director there. But it's uh, it's a great organization that's been involved with. I've been involved with for 15 years when it first started uh, for crab research and getting projects to help awesome. understand what's been going on with our crab fisheries. Awesome. Well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to ask Frank about some of his favorite things related to crab. So we will be right back. Hi, everyone. Jenny here. I just wanted to drop in and let you know other ways that I can help you plan your trip to Alaska beyond just this podcast and the articles on my website. So there are three ways that I can help you if you would like more help from me getting your trip off the ground. And since January is planning month here at the Alaska Uncovered podcast, it's a great time to take advantage of these. So the first thing is I have three planners. So it's a digital planner and workbook. You can also print it out. And um, one of them is called the Alaska Adventure Planner, and that is the one for you if you're planning a trip on your own 
to different places uh, in Alaska. Then I also have one for folks planning cruises, and I also have one for folks planning the awesome drive all the way from the lower 48 up to Alaska. So that's the first way is my planners. The second way is I do one-on-one -on -one travel planning with folks. It's super fun. Uh, we just hop on Zoom and you ask me all your questions and I answer them. And those are 30 minute sessions and you can book them directly online. The link to that is in the show notes along with the link to the planner. And then finally, if you want me to just do the whole thing for you, everything from figuring out um, the best activities for you and your travel crew, where to stay, where to go, how much is too much, what to leave out, all of that stuff, I do that too. I do full custom Alaska itinerary planning, both for cruises as well as independent trips. And I would love to work with you on that. Um, in the show notes is a link to the page with more information. And you can hop over there if you would like me to plan your trip for you. Well, we are back with Frank Kelty, who is our expert about all oh, things related to Alaska's crab fishery. So, Frank, I would love to know what is your personal favorite way to eat crab or maybe a place to eat it? You can answer that however you want to. I I guess, you know, I'm not a big crab eater after being involved with <laughs> cooking and killing hundreds of millions of pounds of crab or 30, 50 million pounds over my career. But, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. yes, that's Thank very you. interesting. But I have, a, I have a cute story. When we first started in the king crab industry in the early 70s, they didn't freeze it like they do now in the shell. We had to extract all the meat out of it, except oh, for the claw. Wow. The claws we froze. But we had to we we had uh, we had big hard rubber rollers that would squeeze out the leg meat, and then the shoulder meat, where we call it the rosebud. It's kind of if you look at the, the when you break a leg off after it's cooked, it's kind of a rosebud. The shoulder meat, the white meat, before you get to oh yeah the the leg, and so you had machines that so you would pop that in in a, in a spout in a water spout thing, and it would push the meat out. And then the legs meat would be squeezed out through hard rubber rollers. So it was called a meat pack. So we used to do 15 pound blocks of, of uh, three layers of meat. The uh, salad meat would be the walking leg, the little thin leg at the end. And then you would have the Maris legs, which is the big, the big favorite, everybody's favorite of ingrab leg. And then you have this shoulder meat that was kind of white on top. And those would be 15 pound blocks. And you put four blocks in a, in a bag. It was 60 pounds of king crab meat. That's how we did crab for years. Wow. Until about 1977. And then they figured out, well, doing it that way, rolling it, you know, blowing it out and rolling it, you only get it up with like 27, 28% recovery. But if you froze the whole crab in the shell clusters, your recovery went up to 65%. Wow, that's giant junk. So the guys figured out, let's sell the, sh let's sell the shell too, you know, so. Right. Yeah. right. So, that uh, that makes sense. They, what they, you had to change your whole freezing operation. You had to go to a different kind of a cooker uh, because you had to put them in baskets. The bats cook them in a in a batch cooker in a like a twenty pound cage, or you'd have two twenty pound um, cages separated. So you have a you cook them in a in in a in a king crab. You cook for uh, twenty five minutes. Then you have to cool it. And then we went into a salt brine, refrigerated salt brine at zero degrees, to freeze it. 
Um, that was the best way to freeze that stuff. So uh, uh, we started doing it. Uh, it's called clusters now or frozen crab clusters. So my favorite way, I thaw the crab out. I've got some, uh, somebody donated me some crab or I go buy a 20 pound gift pack in Dutch Harbor. I'll take the crab, let it thaw out. It's already cooked. So you, you can still warm it up if you want to put it in the oven or something. But uh, I like to uh, pop the shoulder meat off, pop that skinny walking leg that's uh, on there out, pull that off. Then you just shake the big leg that has the red leg meat in it. Pop, just shake it like this and it'll come right out, pop right out. And then you uh, pop the shoulder meat out. And uh, if you want to get mess with that little thin, thin walking leg, you just uh, break the tip off and then uh, break the part up on top. And, and then you can shake the meat out of that or cut it with a, a knife and you can pull the meat out. But uh, um, usually we don't get, uh, we'll, uh, we'll do it that way. A lot of people uh, go out, you know, subsistence fishing in Alaska because king crab is so expensive. I called up last week to see what a gift pack of red king crab would be. They said, oh, Frank, uh, for 10 pounds, it's $500. I wow. Said, oh, my don't God. You, don't you remember who I used to be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow, that's a lot of money. So I didn't buy any, but I'm going to try and get some tanner crab. I'm going to get some tanner crab. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, but uh, usually if I was up in Alaska, I'd have a fisherman friend would give me, you know, a few pounds of crab. Yeah. Because they'll cook, the plants will cook up home packs for the boat crew. You know, boat crew will, you know, say, here, here's a couple hundred pounds of crab we want to for ourselves. Could you please cook it and freeze it for us? And right. We, we would do that as a courtesy. Nice. So, um, love it. Okay. But yeah, so, I like to just thaw it out and uh, bust it out of the shell and, and, uh, and just go for it. Yeah, go for it. Love it. Uh, I saw on your list you had, uh, uh, favorite restaurants in Alaska. That's not very, that's, I think you already got that answered. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny <laughs> when we were talking with Catherine about yeah. that, um, back in yeah, December, you, she had you have a list of about four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she had some good suggestions, but I know that they're very limited. That's why we thought we would ask you about your favorite way to have crab instead. Yeah. If you're going to go to, a, I still like to go, I still like to go to the, I still like to go to the Grand Illusion when they yeah. have, uh, good fish on you know at the hotel uh but i like uh for lunch the the uh, norwegian rat saloons okay they got good fish and chips there at lunch for lunch time yes and then the sushi bar that the hotel uh, has over another building uh, is good i like their they they got a couple of good sushi places over there awesome so okay frank what is your favorite month in Alaska. Oh, it's got to be July and August. July yeah. and August. Yeah. That's the, um, as long as there's no fog events where you can't travel. Sometimes you get that when it gets warm, the fog sets in early in the morning and doesn't burn off till like five o'clock at night when all the planes have already canceled. But uh, it's good for hiking. Uh, the salmon are running so people can go out and sport. Love it. Fish and uh, People can get out on the water. A lot of the Alaska residents have uh, nice vessels to go uh, subsistence fish or, or uh, uh, sport fish from the beach. So yeah. July, August. Uh, plus, I was a softball player for 50 years in Alaska, and uh, the baseball field is named after me. So we used to have, 
great big, uh, great slow pitch games at Kelty Field. Love it. Oh, that's so fun. Our last question is is about your favorite thing to do in Alaska. So is that play softball? <laughs> well, it's not to go sport fishing, I can tell you that. I've seen enough fish. <laughs> but uh but uh sport fish, uh occasionally just to go out uh walk around the community, you know, when it's nice you have a nice day, take a take a walk. There's a one of the things we built in our Mayor Kelty's quality of life campaign was uh, bike trails all, all around the lake and all the way down the main highway. So we have good good places to go uh, walk and take good hikes. Uh, even for people go up there, and I've, I've seen people push their their uh, parents or grandparents in wheelchairs and push them down the bike trails and uh, you know That's get out. Cool. It's really nice in the summertime uh, to get out and walk around. I'm not much of a hiker anymore. I'm a pretty big guy, so I'm not. Uh, into climbing the mountains, but it's uh, it's nice. We have a lot of the military roads are up there and and uh, in the mountains, so you can drive up, get out of your car, and walk around and uh, just look at the, the wildflowers. And it's uh, it's really a beautiful uh, a beautiful place. Sometimes the sunsets, even in this time of year, are just so so beautiful. Plus, there's so much history there. You know, the Yunung uh, and Alley people have been there for ten thousand years. Uh, the, we have the the largest and most beautiful Orthodox Church in Alaska. is It's our treasure in the community. Uh, you've got the history of World War II uh, that are still. Uh, um, you can see the World War II bunkers on the hillside, and uh, you can go climb up some of the roads uh, and uh, go inside bunkers. And you know they, uh, the the uh, the bunkers that were lookout over the bay, so they could uh, you know sight the guns they uh, for the the uh, batteries protecting the entrance of the harbor and stuff like that. It's just really, uh, I'd encourage you guys to come out there and take a look and spend three or four days. It's just. That would be so fun. We would love to do that. Yeah, well worth it. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful area. Yeah. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing um, about on Alaska and about the crab fishery and about your fascinating experience doing crabbing and fishing. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks to all of you who are listening for joining us for this episode of Alaska Uncovered. If you haven't already, I want to remind you to sign up for my emails that will give you um, Alaska travel tips in your inbox every Wednesday. So if you haven't done that yet, make sure to do that. And thank you for being here. We'll see you next Wednesday. Bye for now.